This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hey, I'm, I'm glad everyone's here, and you know we're we're joking around at the beginning because obviously this is a this is a really I mean there's lots of really heavy topics we're talking about here, but I do feel like this is one of the ones that maybe makes people feel the most hopeless, um, perhaps especially if you're on the left, which we're going to get into because I think there's a lot of competing impulses around the questions of of gun violence. Uh, as you'll see when I give this presentation, um, calling this talk Socialist Solutions might have been over-promising a little <laughs> bit. I would not, uh, I, it just, there was alliteration and I thought that it would get people in the room, but but <laughs> it's more, but I, that being said, this is actually going to be more of a talk about what should the left actually be doing and saying, not just what are the causes, which those are very important conversations, but I, I think, I, and I, I think it's really a very open conversation on the left. So I full-heartedly agree with the sense that um, in addition to how uh, frightening and tragic and um, oppressive uh, gun violence is, it's also incredibly depressing because the public discussion and debate about it is awful. First of all, it's dominated by mass shootings, uh, which are horrible and terrifying and on the rise, but also are not representative of, uh, speak up? Oh, okay, sorry. Sure, okay, this better? Okay, thank you, for t- thank you for telling me. Um, mass shooting, it's not just that mass shootings aren't representative, because uh, they're still horrifying and they reveal something pretty sick about our society, but the debate is always one side being like, that person shouldn't have had a gun, which is, yes, I think we can all agree after a mass shooting, that person shouldn't have had a gun. That doesn't really necessarily, what does that mean? And then the other side is everybody should have had a gun, which I think is also usually not so good. And that is actually the level of discourse that we kind of have at moments when everybody is reeling and in shock um, and in pain. And so it just kind of furthers that pain. And you know what I mean? It's it's, it's such a, it's both the horrors of of gun violence, but then also the, the feeling that uh, uh, that we can't even have a, a, a rational thought about it. Um, and I think one reason, um, and even in terms of on a more high level, like there's things that, that are seen as opposite sides of the gun debate, right? So I live in New York, um, which has been the center recently of a lot of gun politics. The Supreme Court just issued a ruling overturning uh, the law in New York City that had more restrictions on open carry, right? You know what I mean? Giving more people, you know, the uh, more people are going to be walking around with, with guns in New York State. That is seen as a pro-gun, gun rights thing. Uh, in response, my mayor, uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, like like many Democratic mayors, denounced this measure. He's also uh, calling for um, for more. He, he's been putting out new additional police uh, gun units, which is also putting more people with guns on the street. Both of these things are about putting people with guns on the street 
to stop the you know supposed threat of bad people, which is coded as black and brown people with guns. And yet these are seen as opposite sides of the debate. One of these things is seen as being the pro-gun and one is being anti-gun. They both are about having more good guys with guns on the street against bad guys with guns. So that is how limited the gun discussion for the most part is uh, in this country. And I think we could say we have, it's, it's a debate that has a right wing. You know, the NRA is sort of racial paranoia. Uh, the, you know, white, you know, primarily white men need to arm themselves against criminals and terrorists or whatever. And then there's a center, you know, there's very much not a left. There's a center that's dominated by the organizations of Michael Bloomberg and, you know, that are prominently police chiefs and mayors that have very technocrat. How do we just keep guns out of the wrong hands and ignore all the larger causes that lead to uh, gun violence in this country? And like most centrist politics, this is supposed to be done. So there's a tremendous narrowing focus on just background checks. We just need background checks, tighten the restrictions on background checks. I'm going to talk a lot more about background checks uh, today. Um, like a lot of centrist politics, it's supposed to be good. You, you may, maybe it's not everything you want, but it's good politics. You know, it works. It's what's successful. And like most centrist politics, this is complete bullshit. And it actually just loses to the right. So in fact, Gun politics are moving to the right, both from both in the NRA vigilante direction and in the law and order, more cops direction. Right. Both of these are shifts to the right. Um, support for stricter gun laws, whatever we think of them, has actually got gone way down from a high of 67 percent a few years ago after the Parkland protest to barely 52 percent last year. Um, and um, just during the pandemic. 18% of households purchased a gun just in those two years. Nearly 50% of adult Americans now live in a household with a firearm, which is actually a reversal of a trend where that had been going down uh, for decades. And first-time buyers were younger, more likely to be people of color, and not homeowners than repeat buyers. So it's not just people like the, the middle-class, upper-middle-class white man, I'm going to protect my property. And I think this is also a, re you know, um, the statistics show that buying a gun is less likely to actually successfully defend you um, from, you know, a threat than to end up with you or, or a loved one, um, you know, being hurt. But of course, there are instances where plenty of instances where that's not true. And you can't say it's irrational in a society where every institution is falling apart for more pe and, and violence is on the rise from, for people to being like, I have no choice um, but to get a gun. So the centrist politics is not is not working. Um, the left, which I think has been mostly absent from this debate, and all of us, I'm just saying, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. We really struggle with this issue, right? Because on the one hand, we are horrified by the incredibly high levels of violence in this country. We're also rightly completely skeptical about carceral solutions, more police, things like that. We generally, most of us, um, you know, instinctively and correctly support uh, oppressed people's right to self-defense, right? But we also understand that the, the, the main uh, institutions talking about the right to self-defense now are actually white supremacists, uh, you know, uh, uh, militia types, NRA, you know, NRAs or whatever. And so that's how do you navigate that? Um, and so there's, I don't think the left has been at all shaping the discussion or debate around gun violence the way, even if we're not winning, we certainly have been around climate change, uh, around healthcare, you know, and, and things like that. And this talk isn't going to say, here's exactly how we do it, but it is an attempt to try to put out a framework, you know what I mean, about what does it mean to have an independent left approach of gun violence. And I am sure it is far from perfect. I really hope there's a lot of discussion um, and, and feedback about it. Um, let me just check where I am. So 
Well, where am I at, by the way? I know, but I'm, I'm literally in my head two ways in this song. <laughs> okay. Um, so, let me see where I'm at. Some of what I'm going to talk about is, you know, measures that are already considered maybe part of the gun control movement, but are part of an overall framework that is about scapegoating, you know, uh, uh, demonizing people and calling for more criminalization. So to me, it's not so much about having entirely new ideas as it is about having a pretty different framework, right? A framework that understands that guns are a question of power, right? This isn't just about these objects. The question of power, who has the immense power of owning a gun, who is able to have that right in this country, and who isn't? That's a really important question with gun politics. And what kind of power are people seeking with a gun, right? Um, we know that the most prominent gun fundamentalist organizations, right, like the NRA, push for a vision of power that's incredibly individual and hierarchical about protecting your property, occasionally patrolling your, your community um, against outsiders, right? And that is a vision that when there's declining senses of power that people have in the rest of their lives can sometimes be, feel like the only power um, that people can take. So part of, I think, our job too is how are we projecting very different kinds of power, right? To me, it's no coincidence that almost every state that is trying to push to expand gun rights as the core way you protect your freedom is also looking to restrict protest rights as the way, right? And then and, and those things, so one way is discouraged is what it means to actually protect your community and the other way is absolutely encouraged. And what does that mean? How are we putting out an alternative to that? Um, so specifically, I'm gonna go through four elements of what I think should be a socialist framework um, to gun violence. The first one is I think we need to be for safety measures that are universal, not based on profiling uh, around certain good guys can have guns and bad guys can't. The second one is that the kind of power we need to be building is democratic power over gun institutions, which could be the police, it could be other law enforcement agencies, it's gun manufacturers, it's the NRA, etc., and not increasing state and police power over people through criminalization. That's another key principle. The next one, I think, and this is, I think, a hard one, is that we have to understand that in a country where, like it or not, there is a huge demand for guns, we make more change by changing the culture than we make it by changing the laws. But changing laws is also part of changing culture. So we're going to get into that a little bit. But in terms of understanding, like, what, uh, you know, what are we trying to do? And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, is... Um, any movement against gun violence has to be led, shaped, uh, the ideas formed um, by the people that are the most oppressed by gun violence, right? And that is so the opposite of the, um, you know, the, the most well-funded and prominent uh, organizations that sort of speak out against, against gun violence today. So I'm going to get into all that. Let me give a couple of caveats before I continue. Um, this talk is not going to get that much into the history. I'm going to make some allusions to how we got to this place, America's history um, with gun violence. It's incredibly important stuff uh, to read. And I could talk, if people have questions, I could, in the wrap up, I could talk about, you know, sources that I think people should read about that. But I want to give a lot of space to these questions about, like, what are we, uh, what should we be proposing and talking about now? Um, another caveat um, is, um, I don't know shit about guns, 
Uh, I grew up in New York City, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm from a very not-gun culture place. And so I try to, you know, and I've, I've never been to shoot. This is just not part of my life. And that is, I don't say that as a point of pride. I don't say that as a point of not pride. I say that as a point of, like, a lack of qualification, right, in a lot of ways for this talk. And so it's just one of, so when I talk about, you know, certain bans on weapons or whatever, you're going to hear my ignorance coming out. I, you know what I mean? Like, this, this is a discussion. I'm just putting that out there now. Feel free to call me out on it, but I'll just, I just did it on myself. Um, all right. Before I get into the, these sort of four elements of this framework, though, let's just establish some facts. And maybe the way that I order these facts is going to be a little bit suggestive of my politics, but they are all just facts. Okay. Fact. The U.S. has way more gun deaths than other wealthy nations around the world, right? I mean, as of a couple years ago, six times the rate of Canada, 50 times the rate of Great Britain. Fact, the U.S. has way more guns than other wealthy nations, although not by as high a rate. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation, like three times the rate in Canada, 20 times the rate in Britain. Those numbers have gone up, actually, since the, you know, which we'll get into because uh, gun violence has gone up. Notably, the number of guns does not, does not include, because we don't really count it, at least publicly, how many guns are in the hands of the Pentagon, police departments, Border Patrol, all of our, all of our different agencies of repression, uh, which also far outstrip other countries and are never seen as part of the same category as the U.S. having more guns, but of course, totally are. Um, the U.S. is also a more violent place in general than other wealthy nations. We're number one in COVID deaths, right? We're number one in violence in prisons. I'm talking about in wealthy nations. Um, violence on borders. Um, violence of people dying from not having health insurance, right? And just like those other forms of death, uh, the U.S., we just, we just went through a shocking decline in life expectancy um, over the last few years. Gun deaths are also up, both from suicide and from homicide. In fact, 2020 had the most gun deaths ever in this country. Um, and it was a 25% increase from uh, five years before. That doesn't mean that the rate of gun deaths, actually the rate of gun deaths was higher in the late 60s and in the early 70s. And, we, and we're still very much within an overall rise and decline in gun violence. I hope it's clear that I don't say that to dismiss how horrifying it is that we're in a rise right now, but just for people to have a sense um, of perspective around that. Um, the most common, the deaths we talk about from guns the most often are mass shootings. Those are the ones that happen the least. Again, not at all dismissing that. The gun deaths that are the most common are suicides, the ones we talk about the least, right? So suicides account for more than half of gun deaths in this country. Uh, the U.S. has not, the U.S. is not an outlier in suicide rates um, compared to other countries around the world, but certainly the greater access to guns makes more suicides successful uh, in, in this country. Um, so there's something, it's actually not right when people are like, oh, well, if someone, want, you know, trying to harm themselves, they would have found, that. guns actually make it much more likely um, that, that suicide will um, happen. And I'm sorry if this is, you know, triggering for people. Um, but where am I? Um, among homicides, uh, the most common homicides are not a stranger breaking into your home or a mass shooter. It's people you know, it's abusive partners, it's neighborhood rivals. Over half of women who are killed with guns are killed by partners or family. Um, and among, among homicides that do take place among people you don't know, one third are by police officers, which is stunning, which is stunning. Um, 
mass shootings, like I said, are actually still, you know, a small minority of gun deaths in this country, but fuck, they're growing. And when you think about El Paso and you think about Buffalo and you think about mass shootings with an explicitly white nationalist agenda, it does, this does not make them any less terrifying. It's just that when we talk about guns, we're talking about so many different things. We're talking about suicides. We're talking about, you know, uh, impoverished and oppressed neighborhoods. We're talking about mass shootings by white supremacists. And it can be very unwieldy to try to wrap our heads around what, what all this um, means. And so it's important not to always be thinking mass shooting when we're talking about gun violence. Um, so, uh, and the other last fact I want to say is that as alarming as certainly the current increase in all types of gun violence is, it is also completely not anomalous with American history. Like I said, we are firmly within regular ups and downs. This is a country that has always had more guns and gun violence than other nations that have our economic trajectory. It starts with wars to steal land from, from Native Americans, it's slave patrols, it goes into those two things, slavery and settler colonialism being the reason why this country gives birth to the gun industry, um, and the gun industry that itself becomes, from the 1800s, a major tool for actually spreading guns in the population, which are then used by employers to break strikes in the late 1800s. And throughout, throughout our history, this country has had more gun violence than uh, you know any other country on its similar kind of economic trajectory. So this is all, and also, this country has always had a long history of gun control. Right. Including now. So uh, whether that was, you know, the, the famous well-regulated militia that's in the Second Amendment that actually required um, white men to have uh, to have a gun, which was completely the opposite of what it looked like in a place like England, where, the, you know, like most countries, they did not want, you know, poor subjects to have guns in this country. A number of poor subjects, if they were white and free, they wanted them to have guns because there is more oppressed strata of the population that they were required to have them to arm against. It's a completely different history. But from the beginning, there was those guns were regulated. There was there was regular musters where, where the states would count the guns people had. Um, there was throughout there was the wild west which is supposed to be so wild most of those towns actually had laws that you couldn't bring a gun you had to turn your gun over to the town uh you know to, to, to the town what the mayor i don't freaking know um you know bef before you entered um the town right uh there was much stricter gun control in places like dodge city uh than there is in much of the country um today um but most especially there's always been gun control in terms of who is not allowed to have guns right the second amendment but, you know, it wasn't even a question of who didn't count as a citizen when the Second Amendment, right? That these guns were meant um, to be kept out of the hands of Native Americans, of African Americans, free or um, enslaved in, in almost every situation. And that is not such a different parallel to what we have today, where we actually still have a pretty strict system of gun control in this country in every city where cops, you know, patrol um, uh, and, and background checks and things like that. Um, I say all this, I go through this history, not to be like, nothing's ever changed. If you're radical and on your left, you understand, you know, like, but like the, 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 it's no big deal. It's to say, no, it's, it's a big deal. It's just always been a big deal. Right. And as we confront gun violence and especially the horror of mass shooting, partly we're just confronting something very sick in the soul of this country that's always been there. The fact that so many people want to change it is a really good thing, but it puts the onus on us as the left to figure out what the fuck does that mean? And I'm sorry if I'm about cursing. I will try to cut that out. Um, so let's get into where am I at with time? Ah, okay. So um, let me try. Let me talk more now about the four elements. I think of a framework that I'm just putting out. Um, so the first one, 
safety measures that are universal, not based, not based on profiling good guys versus bad guys, right? Both sides of the gun debate, you know, uh, Democratic mayors, the NRA are obsessed with the idea of trying to get guns out of the hand of supposed bad guys, right? Um, the gun control side points to holes in the system of background checks, which are many and which are legion. The gun rights side says bad guys are going to get guns anyways. Bad guys meaning, you know, criminals uh, are going to get guns anyway. So, so we can't restrict, do anything that would restrict access. Um, both sides are actually kind of right in a super narrow way while they're totally missing the point. I mean, the fact is actually one of the things that's annoying about the calls for background checks after so many horrific mass shootings is how many times those shooters wouldn't have failed any background check. You know what I mean? Like this is just an ideology that's in the face of the facts that's saying that would have failed it. Or even after the horrific, when Dylan Roof shot up people in the church in Charleston and people were saying he shouldn't have had a gun because of the background check, that was for pop, right? So, so people got to think hard if they're saying marijuana use, they think should, it wasn't for his white supremacist um, writings, you know? Um, uh, so at the same time, uh, the people who have the, the most highest, uh, the, the most privileged rights to have guns in law enforcement are people who statistically have the, some of the highest track records of domestic violence and violence at home. So there is the system, both sides you know, can point holes in what the other is saying, but their own logic does not hold up at all. We gotta talk around background checks, talk about background checks. This is the most popular gun reform, right? And it's, of course it's easy to understand why. It's a simple idea that like, how could that person who just did this horrible thing have been able to go to a store and get a gun, right? But the problem, um, they, I'm going to go into why that being like the essential demand is both not effective, but also really politically um, dangerous. So history, the, when people talk about background checks, we almost and never say what we mean. We're talking about the National, the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, the NICS, right? That is the system that when you buy a gun that you have to pass. It came about in 1993 in what's known as the Brady Bill. It was actually originally proposed by Wayne LaPierre the head of the NRA, because he, back in the 80s, it fit right into the NRA framework of like, let the good white guys have guns, keep keep the guns away from the people we don't want them to be. Now, by the time it got passed, the NRA had moved further to the right, and they were just in full culture war mode, you know what I mean? So they, they managed to, now suddenly they were against it. That's what Republicans do, the further right Democrats move, the further right Republicans do. But that's just, that's the background for the NICS. The criteria for what is on the National Instant Criminal Background Check has a couple of things that make sense. Domestic violence, stalking, behaviors that are tied to higher rates of gun violence. Also though, drug use, aliens, mental defectives. This is the actual language in the NICS, as well as just the category of, of having a felony, right? now. There's all sorts of very different types of felonies. Some have nothing to do with a higher increase of likelihood, but they have very much to do with what uh, what people in our country are much more likely to have felon, you know, felonies on their record, right? Um, but it's not just that, and, and if you think about this whole category, so by me mental defectives, we've just gone through a pandemic where in the first year, anxiety and depression rose sixfold to basically half the population. We've all, I think, experienced personally and all around us this the breaking this myth that there there would just be some people who you know may be dangerous and violent and other people who, who aren't i mean i think we've all experienced personally in the last couple of years that we are you know all of us are capable of snapping of violence of, her, of heroism of defending people right um 
it's not just that background checks, um, certainly as they currently exist, aren't effective. It's pretty freaking ominous for something that, like it or not, is a constitutional right. Okay? If there is something called this, um, there is something called the Second Amendment. That's not so, whatever. But the Second Amendment is part of the Constitution, right? Um, and to say that we're going to pass things that, that greatly abridge that for some people, particularly based on categories that have more to do with scapegoating than any kind of data tied to higher rates of public health, is really messed up. When the you know there's just that bipartisan gun legislation that 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 finally passed Congress, some of which has like a lot of really good funding for mental health, but mainly is, is about tightening up the system of background checks. Here's what Mitch McConnell said. He said, the legislation before us would make our communities and schools safer without laying one finger on the Second Amendment for law-abiding citizens. I thought that all the amendments were supposed to be for everybody, right? So think about that logic of like, we're gonna protect the Second Amendment for law-abiding citizens. Think about if like it's you know it's making that category for who who gets that protection and not. Think about what these same people like Mitch McConnell want to do with things like the Fourteenth Amendment, want to do with the First Amendment in terms of who has these rights and who doesn't. So this is just a, you know this is not about buying into the NRA's version of the Second Amendment, but it's just about being pretty clear-eyed about what it means for background checks to be the primary way people understand how we keep us safe. Um, so. What does it mean to talk about universal measures instead? There's plenty of things that people talk about that are getting passed. This isn't about, you know, it's things like raising the age um, for when you can buy a gun, which I, I would be for. I'd love to hear debates about it, right? Mandatory waiting periods, right? I mean, I think things like uh, licensing systems for gun ownership, more similar to the automobile model. Not that that isn't messed up, not that that doesn't have its own uh, prejudices, with periodic re re renewals by public health agencies, not police, right? Police are currently um, in charge of these systems, right? One of the things about having more robust licensing systems is that actually you can have an agent, like it should be elected agent, you know, uh, uh, public agencies that are actually in charge of gun training, which right now is completely outsourced to NRA affiliated groups, which is one of the biggest sorts of the NRA's um, membership funding and ideological uh, influence, right? So these are all things that are more about like, what are universal public health measures? Not like, how do we minority report our way into figuring out who's going to commit um, violence ahead of time? So second principle, democratic power over gun institutions, not police power over people. There's two ways to basically think about public safety. There is the democratic, you know, we keep us safe vision, right? How do we work together to reduce sources of conflict, to de-escalate conflict, to reduce poverty, to heal trauma, all the things that we know are actually what are connected to it. Then there's the authoritarian way uh, to handle public safety, which is they will keep us safe if we obey them, right? If we give them what untrammeled power to root, to, to find the sources of violence uh, in our communities. Now, the democratic approach to public safety is not perfect. It doesn't guarantee us safety. Um, but neither does the authoritarian way at all. The authoritarian way actually doesn't work. Armed citizens almost never stop a shooting uh, in progress, right? They didn't even stop a shooting when there was the mass shooting at the military base in Texas, right? Full of armed soldiers. Um, police almost never stop a shooting uh, in progress. But what armed citizens and police often do is fucking commit shootings all the time, right? Both police departments and NRA training classes uh, offer the exact opposite of the kind of de-escalation techniques that are necessary. In fact, it's all about situational awareness, seeing how anything around you could be a potential threat. It's about escalation, right? Um, so I mentioned before, 
Okay, let me let me uh, let me skip that. And yet, after every shooting, there are of course calls for either more more armed guys with police, more armed guys with guns, whether that's police or whether that's whether that's that's armed citizens. Completely in the face of of the paltry record of of that being effective. Which, by the way, there are heroic instances where people with guns and without guns interrupt mass shootings, try to stop it. Um, I don't. It's it's just as often been people without guns. Um, Okay, so what are we calling for? We're calling for the exact, exact opposite. Less power for police in the gun industry, more democratic power over them, right? It means ending the crazy privileges that gun manufacturers have in this country, right? So it means repealing the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which gives them immunity from lawsuits that very few other uh, companies enjoy, right? It's reversing something called the Dickey Amendment, which blocks federal funding into researching gun violence. It's very hard to wage public health campaigns about the effects of gun violence when we're actually muzzled from actually knowing the data about gun violence. It means things that are as technocratic and yeah, I'm fine for like, like uh, in New York and California now, they're pushing for things called gun merchant category codes, right? Which is basically like on your credit card and stuff, being able to track, just like credit card companies track whether you all, t- you know, whether your purchase went to a pharmacy, went to a bowling alley, went to, but it can't track whether it went to an arms dealer because that's one of the many privileges uh, that, that, uh, that, that the gun industry has carved out for itself. It's just absurd, okay? It also means ending the unique privileges that are granted to law enforcement agencies and police departments, particularly with guns. People who have higher rates of both suicides and domestic violence, right? So it means repealing the Law Enforcement Officers Safety Act, where current and retired police get to carry concealed weapons anywhere in the country, regardless of local laws, right? Um, It means ending all the local police practices that exist almost anywhere where officers are allowed to bring their service weapons home. Why? Well, you know, how many shootings are like an off-duty cop? Why did the cop fucking have a gun? Um, and it's, of course, it means ending the Pentagon's 1033 program that gives police surplus tanks, grenade launchers, all the things we've seen uh, deployed um, in all sorts of protests. Okay, three, changing culture is more effective than changing laws, but changing laws is part of changing culture. So let's talk about bans on different kind of weapons, right? Um, and this is where my gun ignorance is going to, I'm not, you know, I'm, I already warned you guys. Um, I will just say from a little bit, I know, I do think talk about assault weapons bans is usually one majority of homicides do not take place, you know, take, take place with handguns Two, the category of assault weapon is actually very amorphous. It's more of a marketing term than it is actually a description of a distinctive type of weapon. I think if you're talking about mass shootings, things like actually bans on like high, like magazine capacity and things like that make a lot more sense. But Again, I already told you guys, I don't know shit. Um, but regardless of that, I think we should be clear that even if there were to be bans on all sorts types of different types of weapons or attachments or ammo, um, it would not lead in the immediate to or it, it to by itself to less gun violence. I'm sure it would actually lead in the immediate sense to way more people buying guns, right? Uh, both while it was still legal, and then we have to be really clear about this: a highly dangerous black market. Um, in guns, right? Like it or not, there's an incredibly strong demand for guns in this country. So people often bring up, you know, it's it's well known in Australia in 1996, uh, there was a major, you know, there after a mass shooting. Okay, I may go a little bit more up. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'll just say the Australia, people may know in Australia, there was a, you know, a, a ban on all sorts of weapons. Over time, it led to a big reduction in guns. Australia, I'll just say, had so much, so many fewer guns in the US, so much less demand. Um, 
in the U.S., I want people to think back if they know in the early 90s or on the brief times that there was actually an effort to like aggressively go after certain um, kind of armed right-wingers with guns. It led to things called Waco, Ruby Ridge. It led to a rise of a white militia movement. It led to the Oklahoma City bombing. And it basically, it throughout history, when you have our government, when they ever try to actually go against white nationalists with guns, um, they are not committed to actually seeing that fight through. And in fact, it's going to lead to uh, much higher rates of violence. That, that's not how we're going to stop them. And I'm sorry if I'm kind of getting all over the place. I'm, I'm rushing a little bit. Um, what I, everything I'm saying does not mean that, in my opinion, we shouldn't be for certain, you know, banning on, on uh, manufacture and sale of certain types of weapons or anything like that. It's just saying we should be clear that that has to be part of a fight to change the culture. I think, you know, I think certain kinds of quote unquote assault weapons bans could be important cultural victories. You know what I mean? If they're actually not seen as just like, oh, if we get that ban, then people aren't going to buy those weapons anymore. But they have to be accompanied by the kind of campaigns we saw for decades against drunk driving, right? The kind of things where people like this massive public health campaigns about rates. When you have a gun in the home, what is the most likely thing um, that is going to happen, right? Um, so, um, and I, yeah, I also think, um, yeah, so let me just leave it at that because I want to get to my last point, which may be the most important, which is uh, any movement against gun violence has to be led by the people that are most affected, most oppressed by gun violence. People uh, who are suicidal, uh, poor people of color living in over-policed neighborhoods, domestic violence survivors, people who work alone at night in trucks, in convenience stores. Most importantly, something that's never talked about, victims of U.S. imperialism. Um, this is the opposite of the movement that is organized and shaped mostly by mayors, former mayors, uh, and police chiefs, which is really what a lot of, which is, there's so many incredible people on the ground doing work uh, against gun violence. And there are small organizations doing, like making all sorts of connections, but the movement on a national level is dominated by Michael Bloomberg's Every Town for Gun Safety, uh, which funds almost every uh, major, you know, uh, major group. It's uh, under Every Town for Gun Safety that a lot of the focus of gun control is really narrowed to just being focused on background checks in the name of being the most quote unquote realistic. Um, and in general, though, with the movement right now, um, it tends to, it, this gets back to the whole focus on mass shootings, right? I'll just speak a couple more minutes. Um, one, it's understandable why we focus so much on mass shootings. How can we not? <laughs> like, like this, is, this, is not, this is not me being like one of those online people being like, you're so focused on this, but that's happening. No, we are all, when, when Uvalde happened, I mean, of course, it's, it's horrifying. But there's a, it's a job of a movement to build that kind of empathy for the people that are most frequent victims um, of shootings, right? And instead, there's a, uh, but they're not the good victims, you know what I mean? They're not, quote, innocent, or in, you know, in the eyes of some of these groups, right? Innocent school children. In fact, many people who are killed by guns in this country are, wouldn't be eligible for guns because maybe they have a criminal record, right? You know what I mean? Like, so there's a, just like this sort of a good guys with guns and a bad guys with gun politics, there's a good victims and a bad victims politics. But any movement um, that, that makes change in this country is actually led by the people that are stigmatized as being, you know, uh, and, and problematized. And that's very far from where we are. We had a glimpse of what a very different movement against gun violence could look like after the Parkland shooting in 2018, when there was a March for Our Lives that didn't just involve students 
um, in Florida, but connected with black and brown students around the country that day of the March for Our Lives. So I want to give, I want to read a couple excerpts from speeches that some students gave that day because it really puts forward a very different vision of what uh, a, you know uh, anti-gun violence movement could look like. So Edna Chavez, who's uh, who's from LA, her brother had been killed uh, by a gun. She said. For decades, my community of South Los Angeles has become accustomed to this violence. It's normal to see candles. It's normal to see posters. Uh, it's normal to see flowers honoring the lives of black and brown youth who have lost their lives to a bullet. How can we cope with it when our school district has its own police department? Instead of making black and brown students feel safe, they continue to profile and criminalize us. Instead, we should have a department specializing in restorative justice. We need to tackle the root causes of the issues we face and come to an understanding of how we resolve them. At, in, uh, from Chicago, there was Trayvon Bosley, who, whose brother was killed um, gun violence. He said, I'm here to speak for those youth who fear they may be shot while going to the gas station, the movies, the bus stop, to church, even to and from school. Uh, Chicago's violence epidemic didn't start overnight. It was caused by many problems we're still not dealing with to this day. When you have a city that feels it's more important to fund a college's sports complex than fund schools in impoverished communities, you have gun violence. When you have a city that feels we need bikes for tourists rather than workfare programs to get guys off the streets, real jobs, you have gun violence. And he sort of continued on that theme. I think it's pretty clear why people like Michael Bloomberg or Rahm Emanuel or Lori Lightfoot, I'm going to pander to my Chicago audience, um, don't really want a movement where not just people like Trayvon Bosley are speaking, but they're actually shaping the demands. They're actually, they're actually have real positions. Um, of power in the movement. That's a, that's a sort of glimpse of the kind of movement we want to build, but not just with youth, right? With all of the victims um, of gun violence. And I just want to emphasize again, especially um, victims abroad of U.S. imperialism. One of the most uh, sickening parts of the gun discussion is when people, liberals, will say things like, that gun had no, that gun belongs on a battlefield. You know what I mean? Like that gun was here. That's like something I would see in Iraq, right? Um, which is normalizing U.S. violence in Iraq and also completely then de like the whole Chicago-Iraq comparison, right? It's both normalizing the violence in Iraq and foreignizing Chicago, right? Or certain parts of Chicago, right? So liberals think that they're trying to, you know, create this empathetic thing like we're all, we're all Americans. They're doing the exact opposite. Um, and so it's very important in organizing to actually, in what, and I don't freaking know how to do this, to bring together victims of gun violence here and gun violence abroad. Actually talk about what gun violence really, um, really looks like. Um, so let me just finish up by saying, um, I don't think what I laid out is, it's not coherent. It's not like a Green New Deal, right? Like this isn't something, and I, and, and I don't quite know what that means. I also really, look, I barely talked about questions of self-defense. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, for us to talk about. I really, I really look forward to this discussion. Um, it's a really depressing moment. I would just say there are a couple of sources for hope I have. I do feel like throughout the last couple of years in this pandemic, many more people have a sense of what mental health actually looks like and the, the stigmatizing way that it's talked about in relation to gun violence, that there's some people with mental illness and then other people are healthy. It's like most people are like, uh, not sure if I can say that anymore. Um, I certainly think the horror of Uvalde at least, at least showed what pathetic, the pathetic response to the police in Uvalde, you know, put some real dents in the idea of, um, of more cops being necessary. And, and I guess on that, in terms of some places to organize, I do think the fights in schools is really key. You know what I mean? Like, because, and, and this, even though that is, a, that's about mass shootings, and I just said, that's not the most representative thing. 
But whether, you know, the fights against more cops in schools, certainly army teachers, metal detectors, things like that, as opposed to more funding for the actual services um, that students need. Schools are places where, you know, think battles that we can't win on a statewide level, on a national level, people can sometimes win in schools, and that could be a place um, of influence, right? Um, and the last thing I just want to say is I do think, though, it's, there's all these things around. I'm just, the whole focus of this talk is trying to be like, what can socialists say? about gun violence in particular, but ultimately it's the larger socialist project of building organs of a very different kind of power that is the only real answer to the appeal of guns. You know what I mean? Because the appeal of guns is it's the only source of power that people can find. If you think about when there was the teacher strike wave a couple years ago in states like West Virginia, Arizona, places that were all about pushing, uh, suppressing collective protests and labor rights and promoting instead and I think we should talk about this instead, individual gun rights for some people, you know, uh, against others. Those were states that offered, I, if we have a movement that's more able to talk about guns, power, you know what I mean? In those moments, actually counterpose those moments to like, how much more powerful are the West Virginia teachers protesting together and striking than having more gun rights? How, are, how is gun rights going to save our planet, right? You know what I mean? How is gun rights actually going you know, to protect our hospitals and our healthcare? That, that, that's, that's, I think, a huge part of where we're going to go. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.